Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Well, welcome to another edition of Fridays with a Scientist. Today, I have a special treat. We have two guests, Dr. Jesse Bell and Laura Nagengast from University of Nebraska Medical Center. Laura and Jesse, how are you guys today? We're good. Thanks for having us here today. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah really appreciate it. So, both of you, uh, not only are from Nebraska, you both are from Bloomfield. Yes. So, did your, I know now, Jesse, I know you're, you know, quite a bit older, like you're closer to my age. So, I'm assuming you didn't guys didn't really grow up together, but did your families know each other? Uh, I think you can answer that, Jesse. I'm not. Sure. Yeah, since I came around earlier. Um, so, yes, I, I'm definitely familiar familiar with, uh, with Laura's family. Um so her grandfather was the town physician mm-hmm. and her dad is a pharmacist and her mom is a nurse practitioner. And, um, and so I had interaction with all of them growing up. And so definitely familiar, but yeah. Uh, but actually Laura, I don't think we've ever met until you were at the university of Nebraska medical center. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I got my master's in public health. And so while, while I was in grad school, I had a professor, um and we had to do like a little intro and I was like yeah I'm from Bluefield Nebraska and she emailed me later and was like one of my colleagues here is from Bluefield Nebraska <laughs> and I was like no you must have the wrong Bloomfield like there's not a professor Michigan, yeah Bluefield Michigan there's not a professor here from Bluefield Nebraska the town of like 900 people she's like oh yeah and then that's yeah that's how I met Jesse so probably like two or three years ago at this point. yeah yeah give or take maybe a little bit more yeah agree. yeah was it Jesse? How long have you been back in Nebraska? Uh, it's been about five and a half years now, um, and so I was previously, you know, I was out of the state. I did my education, a lot of my education, out of the state. Did my PhD at the University of Oklahoma, which I don't always like to to admit here in Nebraska. Um, it's okay. Yeah, the rivalry isn't quite what it used to be with the change in the conference, but um, and. Then I started working at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I started at NOAA and then uh, ended up transitioning over to CDC. And I worked in that position uh, for, I think, over 10 years, if I remember correctly. And at one point, a colleague of mine from here at the University of Nebraska reached out to me and said, hey, there's a position at the University of Nebraska Medical Center that might be up your alley. Maybe you would think about applying for it. And I did. And next thing I know, after a nice interview process, I decided I was going to come back to the state. And so I've been here for about five and a half years. And the first winter back to scare you away? Uh, it was really bad. That was a horrible winter. <laughs> um, everybody was like, oh, you know, you're from Nebraska, so you'll be fine. You're used to these winters. But I've lived in the South for for almost 20 years. And so coming back to Nebraska, I was like, that was a, it was definitely an eye-opening reawakening to a Nebraska winter. Yeah. I had a similar experience. I'm from this part of the country originally, but we moved around when I was growing up and I came back up here for grad school. And yeah, I realized, oh yeah, this is a lot colder up here, but it's also still very hot in the summer at times. It's like you kind of get everything up here. Yeah. 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 And I always remember the springs being a little bit nicer, but, but, the, you know, maybe that was my own bias because I was born in the spring. And so, was so yeah, but yeah, you, you go from incredibly cold, February is a pretty rough month. And then you go 
pretty quick transition into a, a fairly warm summer. Yeah, and that transition seems to be getting sharper. So, Laura, um, what's your background? What's your journey? Um, yeah, so as we just talked about, I grew up in Bluefield, Nebraska, um, then decided to go to undergrad at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where I studied anthropology and women's studies. And so that was a great experience. And I graduated during the beginning of the pandemic. So Fun. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we all left school a couple of months early. Um, I headed back to Bluefield, Nebraska. Um, so that was like March 2020. And then obviously everyone was talking about public health. The job opportunities weren't great. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to go to grad school for public health. And so in the fall, I moved to Omaha um, and started started school. In the fall of 2020? Yeah, fall of 2020. So, so the, the pandemic actually was what really sparked your interest in public health. Yes. Well, that's very cool. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, Jesse, I mean, clearly you sending, spent time at CDC would have been sort of engaged with it. Um, but what's in terms of your engagement with public health now, what's like your typical work week or month look like in terms of your engagement with the folks in the state? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and my my entrance into public health was kind of backwards. Um, you know, I, I started off with... Um, you know, much more focus on climatology, hydrology, and that's what I worked on at NOAA. And then I made that transition over to CDC. And the reason I did that was, uh, you know, there was opportunity there to try to integrate climate and environmental data into uh, public health decision-making, which I thought was really exciting. And it, and it is, and it was like a new opportunity and there was a lot of growth and development. And so I've been trying to take that here to uh, Nebraska and, and kind of following up on some of the work that I've been doing previously. And one of the reasons I came to Nebraska, I transitioned to Nebraska, was I really wanted to do things that were more on the ground. Like, how do I actually interact and engage with communities? And so we've been doing a, a lot of different work from different perspectives on trying to get better engagement, uh, especially in rural populations, but also in some of the urban populations in, in Omaha and, and Lincoln as well. But And so on a regular basis, so we started the Water Climate and Health Program, which is also Water Climate and Health at the Doherty Water for Food Global Institute, uh, kind of two programs that got uh, started simultaneously. And, you know, we're an academic institution. Um, and so this got started in 2020 as well. And Good timing. Perfect. Yeah, it was easy to to get something off the ground when everybody was sitting at home. Um, no, it wasn't. It was pretty hard. <laughs> it was a real challenge. And so one of the things that came up from that is, you know, we didn't want to just do research for research sake. Yeah. And academia, that's kind of one of the main focal areas. But public health is really engaged in finding solutions for communities and trying to improve community health. And so we really have put a, a big focus on outreach, engagement, uh, and communication. And so we've been doing that in a variety of different ways to make sure that we're trying to effectively communicate to decision makers, to the general public, uh, just broadly about some of these challenges that we're facing within the state. And that's part of the reason that Laura, uh, mm -hmm. we have the, the relationship with Laura and, and the work that she's doing as well. So you're technically an extension educator like myself, mm -hmm. uh, and you're based partly in the School of Natural Resources and partly at UNMC. Is that right? Yeah, and partly at the Nebraska Department of Environment and Energy. 
Oh, okay. So there's kind of three different entities all at play within my role. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't have three different bosses. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I technically have one supervisor, but um, yeah, I guess I work with a lot of different different folks. So you probably you probably spend more time with um, folks talking about water issues, maybe. Yeah. So I guess building off of what Jesse just talked about. Um, well. I guess backing up in grad school, I worked for the Water Climate Health Program, helping a little bit out, helping out with um, some of the projects going on, also helping organize um, different events that we were going to host. Um, but then when I was graduating, the Water Climate Health Program was really wanting to get someone boots on the ground in the public, being able to travel wherever. Um, Jesse does a lot of outreach as well, but someone maybe on a little um, less busy schedule and primarily this would be their job. And so that's where my position kind of came out of. So the Nebraska Department of Environment and Energy, the Water Climate Health Program at the Medical Center and Extension out of UNL all decided to kind of create this position of what I have. So my primary, like primary goal and uh, my work looks very different like every day, every week, um, but kind of at the center of it is just to reach whoever I can, however I can, to talk about um, water and health, water and its impact, its potential impact on health. Um, so whether that's medical providers, farmers, general public, conservation groups, um, whoever wants to listen, and then whoever I can also listen to um, to get their input and their ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I think that listening to constituents and stakeholders is also very important. It's not right. just us. Talking. giving information it's also mm -hmm. having that engagement so we you know mm -hmm. figure out okay what what do you actually need right yeah a, a main focus of public health is needs assessment so absolutely you're wanting to cater your work to and who needs it your focus is statewide if i'm not mistaken yeah mm -hmm. so if you've been able to travel out to the panhandle and western part of the sand hills and yeah yep i travel a lot um i also try to create resources that are um virtual i guess so Created a website on the UNL Water website, um, helped make some different kinds of videos, um, made different kind of infographics or like PDFs that can be available for like public health departments to use, different extension educators to use. Luckily, we're all um, pretty well versed with the Zoom uh, <laughs> and film recording. So that well, is like also unfortunately helped. so probably. I guess it's fortunately and unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that's helped as a, with a statewide role. Um, to communicate with people in the panhandle because I live in Omaha so driving out to Scotts Bluff can be or Valentine can be a bit of a trek yeah you, I'll, you drive to Chicago the same amount of time probably <laughs> right places. yeah um so since I asked an ignorant question how many different uh, health departments are there in the state oh that's a good question is there like 20 are there like 23 something like yeah. that so, yeah. so they're, they're built by dis by county and they're built into districts so like natural resource districts you know they're like by watershed Public health department districts, thereby county. So I don't know. Some have like four counties in them. Then there's like Lincoln, Lancaster County. So it, yeah, it Douglas has its own. Douglas County has its own. Lincoln, Lancaster is mm -hmm. its own. But then, yeah, there's some that cover broader areas across the state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. So, what are some of the main issues that you are there? Like, are there recurring issues or themes that kind of uh, across the state or are there certain things that are more regional or sector specific in terms of public health? Mm. It kind of varies. 
And so I just Googled it. It's 16 health 16, okay. okay <laughs> so that's fewer than the number of natural resources districts by seven, I believe. Yeah, well, I guess natural resources district is 23. Yeah. Maybe that's what yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're on the right track. <laughs> um, so yeah, all of them have, you know, different responsibilities, but they all have similar responsibilities as well. And so, you know, they're really trying to tend to some of those public health issues that those communities are potentially facing. And one of the areas where we're seeing growth is environmental health. And so understanding how environment and the world that you live in potentially impacts your health. And so there is more engagement around uh, those types of issues within some of these local health departments, which is also an excellent tie-in for how the Water Climate Health Program, Water Climate Health, Laura can potentially help better engage and, and connect with these health departments and be a resource for them uh, in trying to address some of these challenges like water quality sure. and in other environmental issues and other changes in the environment that might be potentially impacting human's health as well. Do you find most of the health departments in the state are want the engagement and they want the information they they probably appreciate your time? I think so. Yeah. I think especially after the pandemic has kind of settled down, um, public health departments, obviously they still are constantly busy and over overworked a lot of the times, but with the nitrate issue, with people being more concerned about water quality or interested, at least in my work and who I've talked to, a lot of them, they've maybe like heard about it, but they don't know like the data or don't know kind of the facts or like what's Nebraska actually doing. So I've been reached out to, I guess, to just kind of be like, wait, what is water quality and health? Do we have a nitrate issue in our area? We read this article. Is that true? So kind of like maybe a little misinformation or just giving some raw data to people who are interested. Um, people seem kind of hungry for that. Oh, that's good. And actually, I was kind of hoping to talk to you a little about the nitrate issue. So that does seem to be maybe the top water quality issue in the state. I mean, is that is that a fair assessment? I would say it kind of depends on where you're at and what you're concerned about. I know it's like one of the top talking points right yeah. now as far as water and, quality in the state. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and there's been a lot of discussion around it for a number of different reasons. But, it, mm -hmm. you know, I, I also want to make sure that we're not losing sight on some of the other water quality issues. And, mm -hmm. and those would be, for example. Lead and... Yeah. Um, and we've got natural geogenic contaminants as well, which is things like arsenic mm -hmm. um, in our water. And, you know, there's number of different issues there's pesticides there's uh, PFAS which is getting a lot of attention right now and so manganese which has been a big issue in a lot of different areas up in northeast Nebraska um, Santee uh, tribal nation for example has had a, a major manganese issue up there which is a natural uh, geogenic contaminant mm -hmm. so it's a naturally occurring contaminant is basically what I, I'm saying there but it's not it, you know, a certain amount of uh, concentration of it for humans is unhealthy. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's like everything, right? Once you, you know, certain lower levels are, are okay for mm -hmm. the most part for some things. Um, but if you exceed that, then that's when you can potentially see adverse health impacts or chronic exposure also can potentially lead to adverse health impacts as well. Sure. And the, the nitrate issue, though, that's, that's not really necessarily a new phenomenon in the state, is it? No, I wouldn't say so. I mean, we've been having nitrate 
really a contamination for a fairly long time. Um, you know, the discussions around this have been for 30, 40 plus years, at least talking about water quality issues, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the context of nitrate and, and uh, the contamination that we're seeing in groundwater. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'm assuming that some parts of state are seeing this more than others. I mean, this is, I'm guessing this is definitely probably uh, more heavily tied toward more intensive farming. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this isn't necessarily, this is just sort of a byproduct of us trying to grow a lot of food for our society. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm assuming that though people are starting to take a lot of proactive measures to mitigate this. Yeah, like no one wants to intentionally contaminate groundwater. Right. So it's just a matter of getting different folks to work together. Um, producers also don't want to lose money, you know, so not making sure they're not, you know, wasting money on over fertilizing either. Um, so applying the right amounts of, you know, nitrogen fertilizers at appropriate times of the year um, are all important. So it's really a matter of, you know, everyone kind of understanding what's going on, um, how to protect the water, because we all, you know, no one wants to be sick or get other people sick. Um, so I think that's when, you know, you're kind of struggling or you're thinking, gosh, you know, we all have different different things going on. The bottom line is, um, you know, no one wants to yeah, get each other sick, I guess. Yeah, right. yeah. I think, you know, I, I've been really impressed with um, a lot of individuals within the agricultural sector that's been interested in addressing this. Everything from <laughs> uh, broader organizations that, that address and deal with uh, agriculture commodity groups within the state and their interests in this uh, to local farmers. And, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, when we talk about nitrate, and we talk about potential contamination and groundwater, um, we should probably focus more on some of the, the people that are working hard to try to address these issues. And, and I've been on a number of panels with farmers that are concerned about nitrate contamination in groundwater, but that are also doing a lot of things mm -hmm. and changing farming practices and, and really trying to be proactive in, in addressing these issues because they understand that this is a potential long-term issue for our state. Mm -hmm. And there's no silver bullet when we're talking about addressing nitrate. Like we're not just gonna change mm -hmm. something today and it, instantaneously gets better yeah and just instantaneously gets better that's not going to happen you know you know there's there is a legacy issue around this as well we, you know a lot of this has been built up in the soil column and some of that leaches down into the groundwater and that's going to happen naturally because that's already that's fertilizer that's already been applied in mm -hmm. certain locations um and so for me from a public health standpoint one of my big points is all right we've got this issue you know, we obviously, you know, there's individuals that are interested in addressing this over the long term, but we need to be also addressing this in the short term because mm -hmm. there are potential adverse health impacts associated with nitrate and in groundwater and in drinking water. And so we need to make sure that we're messaging to those people that are most at risk so that they can take actions to potentially reduce their potential exposure and reduce the potential risks that we're seeing uh, or adverse health outcomes that we could potentially see with nitrate contamination. And so that's where that public health piece comes in. It's the messaging, it's understanding, doing the research, trying to have a better understanding about 
you know, where our contamination levels are, who are the populations that are being exposed? Do we see adverse health impacts doing all this kind of groundwork, legwork to really uh, help us come up with solutions and better understanding within the state? Excellent. Are there certain groups of people that are maybe inherently a little more vulnerable to contamination, nitrate? Yeah, I think, first of all, um, folks that live in areas with high nitrate found in their groundwater. So, and also if they drink off a of private well. So, um, if they live in a part of the state that has high nitrate, you know, they have a better chance of drinking water with high nitrate. Um, we also focus on really kind of working backwards. So, we found like the different research that we're seeing with um, the health impacts. So, like, who are they affecting? And then working towards those populations. So, um, folks that um, are ch of childbearing age, so a lot of times like women or have young infants, um, they're a primary focus. We also um, focus on um, people with oxygen transport delivery issues. So that kind of goes with um, a blood oxygen uh, disease. I guess methemoglobinemia um, is found in infants, but it's like a blood oxygen transport delivery issue. Um, not to get too technical, but like we, we that's where the that's where the first regulation of for nitrate and drinking water was founded in, I guess, was from methemoglobinemia, which is when infants um, can experience blood oxygen transport delivery issues. But we can also see it with older folks who have um, some issues in that way. It's probably too much prolonged exposure to it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And so that that came from I think. Um, uh, infant formula and, and then yeah. using water that was uh, at higher levels of sure. nitrate in it. Interesting. Yeah. But something we also try to emphasize is that the health impacts of nitrate, of drinking nitrate contaminated water, aren't limited to just methemoglobinemia. Um, a lot of people who, um, that's, I guess that's one of the, that's one of the main questions I get um, is like, is there anything else besides methemoglobinemia? We don't know anyone that's baby has had blue baby syndrome. Or, okay, methemoglobinemia and blue baby syndrome are the same thing. Um, just to make that clear. Um, I'll, I'll stick with blue baby syndrome just because it's a little easier to say. Um, but folks are like, we have never seen, we don't have any infants around us. Our kids have never experienced blue baby syndrome. Is there anything else? And the answer is potentially yes. Some of the, the, the research shows that, you know, we have high rates of pediatric cancer that could be related. Um Adult cancers. Adult cancer, spontaneous abortions, which are the same um, miscarriages. Um, yeah. There's a lot of different kinds of potential health impacts. Definitely not just blue baby syndrome. Yeah. And some chronic health, you know, chronic health issues that could potentially arise from this as well. And so, you know, and, and you know, part of this isn't to like scare people either. Mm -hmm. And and people, you know, should realize that most municipal and so not private wells. Mm -hmm. you know, private well is the well that is underneath your house. If you're out living out in rural Nebraska and you're getting water from that potential source and it's not regulated by the state, it's not regulated by the Safe Drinking Water Act. It's up to you to monitor that. But municipal water systems are regulated. They are monitored. And so for the most part, they're typically those and very typically are very safe and are mm -hmm you know, safe for consumption, they're being monitored, they're they're watching these levels of nitrate. But it really kind of goes back to those private wells and the private well owner, because it's up to that individual to monitor 
their well and to monitor the water that they're drinking. And so that's one of the reasons we really put a focus on those individuals so sure. that we have better monitoring for them and then they're understanding what the potential risks and then. Yeah. Um, so one of the primary, um, I guess, treatments, so to say, that we advocate for um, are implementing uh, reverse osmosis systems, which I also want to emphasize that they're just kind of like a Band-Aid, um, something that if you're really worried right now, you can do right now. Mm -hmm. Obviously, a long-term um, answer would be something else. But if you're wanting to protect your health right now, it's probably a good idea to um, put a reverse osmosis system in your house somewhere, whether it's at the faucet you choose to drink out of, um, or you can implement one or put one in for your whole house system. Um, but that will reduce the, the nitrate levels in your water. There is a kind of a limit on that. I'm not sure the exact number, but if your nitrate is super, super high, like 200 parts per million, the reverse osmosis system can't remove enough nitrate to get it below the, the safe threshold. Yeah. What, what, is, what is a safe threshold? Uh, 10 parts per million or below is what the current EPA regulation is. So if it was coming in at, say, 80 parts per million, the reverse osmosis system might bring it down below 10. But if it's a 200, not going to be able to reduce it that much. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? It, it depends. Mm -hmm. It depends. You know, and, and it, it, I think the big thing there is just monitoring it sure. and understanding. And then, you know, when you have a reverse osmosis system, there's, there's obviously maintenance. Like you don't just install it and it works and operates forever. Um, there is a, you know, regular, I think, annual uh, serv service that you have to do to that system. Yeah. And then depending on the level of nitrate, sometimes it's like a couple times a year. Um, is recommended, but yeah, you definitely don't want to just put it in and never look at it again. That can actually kind of concentrate the nitrate. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and, and again, you know, one of the first steps is, is getting your water tested. So at least you understand what's going on. And, and if you're interested in how to potentially go about that testing, you can reach out to your local natural resource district. They could help with providing information on how to get water testing. I think some of the NRDs, natural resource districts, actually provide free testing, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Yep, they do. Uh, also, there's a ton of resources online at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln Water website. Um, Go check it out. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of resources on also like what labs can test take your well or take your water, mm -hmm. um, where to send them. Your NRD, some NRDs could do it, like Jesse just said. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So I mean, two things I'm picking up on with the water climate health program. Uh, one would be engagement. The other is data. So clearly, a lot of things that you guys are doing are very data driven. And you know, testing wells, there's just more data points like, oh, do we have an issue or do we not? And if we do have an issue, do what do the steps we take to, uh, like Laura just mentioned, do some band-aid, you know, quick corrective tests, and then what do we do long-term? Um, so, I mean, I, I'm assuming having the Water Climate Health Program as part of the Medical Center and part of Dowry Water for Food Institute probably makes that engagement with the statewide audience a lot easier than it would be, say, if you were just trying to run it through maybe just one of the institutions? Yeah, you know, and, and that, that is where, you know, Water Climate and Health is in a unique position. We are, we are housed within, primarily housed within uh, the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. 
but with it being part of the Doherty Water for Food Global Institute, that runs across the uh, entire university system. And so that also allows us to better access and tap into resources because you have everything from the Nebraska Water Center, you know, we have individuals like you that are here that are focused on and, you know, extension, et cetera. And so we can really tap into these resources broadly across the University of Nebraska system. And I, I think, and that's one of the reasons I really like the way that we're positioned so that we can have a little bit of a, a hand in multiple different pots, but then also have multiple different experts that we can learn from. You know, we have ag experts, we have water quality experts, we have extension experts, all these different people that we can potentially uh, bring into this. Because, you know, the whole premise of the Water Climate Health Program is to find interdisciplinary solutions and to do interdisciplinary research around public health issues associated with our environment here in Nebraska. Sure. We're here to be a resource for the state of Nebraska. And your, your program has built in boots on the ground to actually get this information out there to get people engaged and people actually make meaningful decisions, both the, at the decision maker level. So county based, you know, public health departments, and also a lot of individual decisions that probably, you know, people collectively as individuals, we all do certain things that really benefit society. Uh, so keeping with the theme of water and maybe moving to uh, the lack thereof, uh, water climate health program also has instituted something that I or started a, uh, publish a document earlier this year that I would consider uh, to be very innovative and unique in this country in the sense you guys actually published the what I believe was the first comprehensive drought public health report. Is that is that right? Yeah. And, and so this was kind of a, a roadmap for how public health can be better engaged around drought. Um, and this was kind of a unique perspective. You know, previously, and so this was funded by NIDIS, the National Integrated Drought Information System, and NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And the whole premise was for us to really try to understand how drought impacts human health, what are our gaps in knowledge, and then how do we actually have activities and engagement on public health to be able to address some of these issues associated with drought. Do you think some people find it interesting or, or, you, or do you find some people are surprised and you you talk about the combination of drought public health? Because I think some people think about droughts as something that, oh, it's just kind of dry. We haven't any precipitation while, but there aren't necessarily like the downstream effects that would cause issues public health. Do you, is that kind of a fair assessment? That's a really really fair assessment. Um, you know, one of the things that we did was we had a series of uh, workshops, both national and regional workshops to try to get public health experts and drought experts all in the same room to talk about how drought could potentially, or how they're addressing drought, how could it potentially impact their populations. And it was really interesting uh, to talk to a lot of these different groups because, you know, a lot of them you know, when we talk about drought, a lot of times we're talking about water resource management and we're talking about agriculture. Mm -hmm. But soil moisture is low, you know, yeah. stream flows are getting lower. Um, we're worried about crop yield losses. Right. And I think for a lot of people that that's kind of where it stops. My, my yard's brown. Like I have to start watering the damn yard, you know, three times a week instead of one. Right. Right. But then, you know, when you start looking at it, I always think of, you know, I talk about this quite a bit. Whenever I talk about drought, drought is a threat multiplier, right? Drought can, uh, you know, there's associations with higher, more intense uh, heat waves. There's associations with poor air quality, especially with like dust storms. 
you know, you're more likely to see wildfires. You're more likely um, to reduce water quality and water quantity, which then all of these things, and then changes in vector habitat as well. Like here in Nebraska, there's been research that's been done. Uh, Dr. Kelly Smith, who's here at the National Drought Mitigation Center, did a nice study looking at how uh, drought is potentially connected to um, West Nile virus and the transmission of West Nile virus by mosquitoes. So there's all these different potential pathways for human health outcomes. And so sometimes these are missed. These threat multipliers, these, these issues that come from it being a threat multiplier are, are missed. But internationally, drought has likely killed more people than any other climate or weather related disaster. Yeah. And that's because of famine and malnutrition. Yeah. So I was reading through um, one of your documents that you put on post online earlier this year. And I don't know if this quote can be attributed to you or if you borrow this from somebody else. But it was a good quote, nevertheless, that it was uh, floods kill, but droughts can destroy civilizations. Right. Yeah, I, I, I use that, but it was actually, I was, and I, I can never remember her name. I don't remember her name. But so you didn't come up with that on your own. I didn't come up on my own, but I, I saw it was, a, it was a government official at a drought meeting that made that comment. And a I, U.S. government official? U.S. government official. And I saw that and I was like, oh, that's such a good point. And so I wrote it down in my, my notebook, but I never wrote down who said it. And so I use that one quite a bit. Yeah, so I, I know back in... Uh... 2020, when you and I worked on that one paper, we talked about uh, sort of rehash what happened in 1936, just because like that was a exceptionally bad drought that occurred over the north central U.S. and had you know, significant impacts to agriculture. There was a really horrendous heat wave. Um, you know, I think that was sort of a at the time I was thinking, well, I just kind of want to figure out what's one of, what's what's the worst type of drought that we could have in this area. Like, what are some of the cascading societal impacts that would come out of that? But I. I when I think about public health in that sense, I was thinking more of like, okay, the heat mortality issue. And we, Grant, I think that was the number one heat killer in the United States, 1936, that summer. Yeah. But it still is an issue, um, even with uh, air conditionings and not. Oh, yeah, yeah. Heat in the United States likely uh, leads to more deaths than any other climate or weather-related disaster. I said drought internationally, but in the U.S., heat. And the reason for that is you see heat waves everywhere. And, um, you know, we can get heat waves here in Nebraska. There's heat waves. There'll be multiple heat waves next year in Nebraska. I promise you, it'll probably happen. Or very likely it'll happen. It would be the exception if it was, if we managed to not have a heat wave. Right. Of some kind. Right. And then, you know, you can see the exact same thing uh, across the U.S., whether you're in Arizona, Seattle, um, Northeast, Southwest, Southeast, it, there's going to be multiple heat waves where a lot of other climate related or weather related disasters, they occur in one location and they might occur, you know, like a hurricane might be large and very catastrophic, but it hits one time or a couple times a year in a coastal region. Heat waves are pretty much everywhere. And each time you have a heat wave, you can see a, a human health outcome associated with that. And an animal health outcome as well. Yeah, we found that out the hard way in this part of the country back in uh, back in August, and you know, a lot of excess of uh, cattle mortality from um, that was just kind of a perfect combination of you know, really really intense temperatures, you know, a lot of sun, very little wind, and very high dew points. So does the humidity does that make a, a difference in terms of uh, heat related illnesses? It does. It does. You know, the, you know, humidity. And, and it is really place-based because, you know, we, we, I, 
you know, we acclimate to the climate that we're, we're used to. And so uh, there was a really nice study that was done by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention where they looked across the United States and, and what, and we'll just talk about temperature thresholds at first and what sent people to the hospital or what sent a majority of people to the hospital in Arizona was much different than the temperature threshold in Boston. And, and, you know, Arizona was much higher. Boston was much lower, but Boston is also much more humid than it is in Arizona. And so that's one factor, but also, and, you know, Eric, you know about this better than I do. Um, you know, that relationship with temperature and humidity and especially nighttime temperature because higher humidities, you get that less reprieve, right? Mm-hmm. And higher humidity, or if you have enough uh, mixing overnight, your temperatures to stay in the eighties. That's really, I think what got people in 36, so there's no way it was that humid just given how horrible the drought was for right. most of this continent. Uh, but you had temperatures in Minneapolis, Omaha, Des Moines, Chicago, Milwaukee, that were routinely staying above 80 for several nights in a row. It's probably, it's, my understanding is by about the third or fourth day of, um, Temperatures not really falling below, say, maybe 25 Celsius or 77 Fahrenheit. That's when you really start seeing the spike in mortality. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're doing more research to try to understand this better as well, because, um, you know, there is an association with drought and we haven't published these results yet. But that is one of the things we're trying to understand is, you know, with drought events, we do seem to see a higher percentage of mortality than non-drought events. And so we're digging into those numbers right now to try to better understand what's what's potentially going on. So yeah. there's definitely some work that needs to. And it may be more, more than just the apps, just the heat component too. Maybe there's some upper respiratory components. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just drought in general. Uh, you know, you have upper respiratory issues, but then you know heat as well. You add you know air pollution, uh, poor air quality, and you add heat. And that's just yeah. kind of a, a perfect mixing for, for adverse health outcomes. Well, we have seen more air quality days in this part of the country so it used to be the, the only time we i ever remember having poor air quality in this area was when they would burn off the flint hills in april kansas and you know, like wait till the wind was blowing out of the south because apparently they can't blow it in kansas city uh so we would get their smoke and you know there would be three or four days where you know lps would say okay no outdoor recess you know limited outdoor activities for uh sports and Whatnot, but that was usually kind of it. But here in recent years, it's like we've had a lot of days with uh, some poor air quality from smoke uh, that was, you know, for fires that were nowhere close to here. I mean, like this last year was mostly southern Alberta and Saskatchewan. Yeah. Um, years prior to that, it was primarily like British Columbia, the Pacific Northwest. So like what happens in one place often ends up having impacts downstream, in some cases well downstream. Yeah. Um, in 2010, probably the most recent example I could think of of major agricultural issues. You had that horrendous drought in Southwest Russia that came with the absolute perfect time in terms of decimating, uh, really hurting the wheat. Russia had put an export, you know, had established something earlier that, I forget what the legislation was called, they had established that here, but they um, basically said that we will be self-sufficient enough that, you know, you'll only export what we, beyond what we can consume ourselves. And when it became relatively apparent that they weren't going to be able to achieve, you know, production totals that would get them to self-sufficiency, they were going to put on export ban and prices started skyrocketing and particularly places that were most vulnerable to um, that were like Egypt and Tunisia and Libya as well as countries because they bought a lot of their grain from Russia. Uh, so those prices increased really, really quickly. 
Um, and that was my understanding is just kind of reading from papers that was sort of the last draw for the Arab Spring or one of the last draws. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it just talks about how complex our systems are and how intertwined they are. You know, even though we might be um, geographically uh, removed from some of these locations, they still have repercussions in multiple different ways that could potentially be impacting us. So even a drought, which then can lead to wildfires and et cetera, that could potentially impact crop production, then leads to destabilization or can help with like, um, you know, causing conditions that can potentially lead to a destabilization of governments elsewhere that can have also ramifications on just us and even our crop prices as well. So yeah, it's oh, yeah, absolutely really complex. Yeah. I mean, there's more grain grown in more places. So the, the probability of everybody simultaneously having an issue is a little bit lower, but it's not, not a zero threat with climate change. That, that probability will probably change a bit in the future. Um, so I guess in terms of other environmental health issues, like what are some of the other things that public health departments are most concerned about or, or do you think maybe they should be most concerned about coming kind of as we move into the later portion of this decade? Um, I can take a first step at it and see if, if, if Laura has any, uh, has any additional input. I mean, you know, for me, uh, Extreme weather is, is a big one just in general across Nebraska. You know, we're seeing an increase in the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events that's already having impacts on our health. Um, and so as those things continue to change in the future, understanding what those impacts are, uh, understanding which populations are most at risk, and then how do we potentially address those impacts and build stronger, more resilient communities so that we don't have to face the same consequences over and over again. You know, I think of the flooding, you know, you talked about that really bad winter when I first got here. Uh, that was also the year when flooding was taking place after a lot of that bad winter. Oh, sure. And yeah. then we saw the impacts that had on a lot of communities. Yeah, and that was, a, that was a perfect storm type of thing because there are a lot of years that exact same storm would have been a two-day problem, yeah. not a, in some cases, multiple-year problem. Yeah. I don't know, Laura, you got any thoughts? Yeah, I think it's kind of, I don't know, we touched on it, like air quality, people are concerned of like radon um, and things like that. Air quality, extreme heat, um, making, I don't know. I feel like, you know, we have really, we've had really high temperatures in the summers in Nebraska. And like if you're in Arizona or uh, Texas, I was just in Texas this weekend and <clears throat> everyone has a pool or something to cool down in. You know, we, we don't have that same, you know, luxury here. You have city pools. We have a city yeah. pools, I guess. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I was thinking about thinking about that, too. You know, we're having these really high temperatures. Um, sure. And an invasion of, or not invasion, but the, the spread of, of new diseases as well. Um, I think that's a big one, and, you know, especially rural populations, people that work outdoors, people that like to do outdoor activities mm -hmm. and exposure there. Um, you know, that might be a whole conversation, Eric, at some point that you want to have with, with someone, you know, talking about tick-borne diseases and mosquito-borne diseases. I mean, we're seeing the pop-up of a lot of new tick-borne diseases in Nebraska. Oh, sure. Yes, yeah, we probably used to 
not have to concern ourselves with symbiosis because we didn't have, you know, winters here probably were harsh enough that they would kill a lot of those populations off. Now, maybe not as much, so, or that, you know, our springs and summers have warmed up enough that uh, they their ability to thrive here is longer than what it what used to be. Now they're more established. Yeah. Is that maybe fair to say? That's, that's definitely, yeah. I think there's, there's, there's evidence around that um, coming from multiple different sources showing that exactly what you said, you know, that those winters, uh, because they're not potentially as harsh as they used to be, we're seeing the spread of a lot of these ticks into new, and then we're also seeing those ticks emerge in some of these uh, vectors or insects that carry these diseases emerging earlier in the year, which means you have longer time for exposure as well. So, you know, now all and of a sudden, I'm assuming there's probably also more allergy related issues. Uh, just because you know those seasons have changed a little bit and we probably actually are starting to see some encroachment of vegetation types that are not native to this area that are you know getting in here because we not in the last four years notwithstanding we have been trending a little bit wetter trending a little bit warmer uh, it's also trending more humid so especially like our hot days so like i uh was looking back at august of 1983 this august was it was so hot uh like this august is like the first time we've had four consecutive days over 100 in lincoln um in the second half of August since 1983 but I was looking at the observational data from like the hourly ops of in August of 83 and yeah it was hot but the dew points were in the 50s and 60s like dew points are not routinely in the mid to upper 70s here prior to about 30 years ago a lot of that is agricultural landscape changes yeah um so I think we have to consider like I think that's something else we have to factor in when we talk about uh extreme heat is that uh, the probability of the heat index or the wet globe uh, global temperature being beyond a certain threshold is probably just inherently higher at certain times of year just because of how much naturally capital transformation we have in this part of the country from the corn. And I'm not knocking the corn or the soybean. That's just kind of how it is. Right, right. You know, and that's part of it, right? We, you know, we have to identify the environment that we live in and we have to identify the changes in the environment that we live in and then figure out what are potential solutions for it. And, you know, there's there's always costs and benefits to, to everything that you do, but then trying to figure out how you reduce those impacts is where, you know, and that's where public health really stands. Yeah. And something else that I think is public health related that maybe starting to get on more people's radars is uh, mental health issues. I mean, is that something that public health departments are starting to uh, deal with or maybe you're getting a little bit more engaged with now? Yeah, for sure. I think that's been that's been ongoing probably the past decade. Um, but I, as we were talking about, we are from Bluefield, Nebraska, so Northeast Nebraska, and I was actually working for Extension in, as like an internship over the summer post the floods, so in 2019 summer. Oh, interesting. In when I was still in college, and we had these like little flyers that we posted all around in like restaurants and bars um as mental health resources for folks who have experienced have experienced are experiencing mental health challenges post the flood um you know numbers they can call where they can go um beyond just like a typical um like suicide hotline but more focused on how this environmental event has impacted your health and kind of how you can recover or overcome some of those issues that you're dealing with Sure. Did you have any idea like how many people were calling in or? No, I think that was all kind of privatized. Sure. That make, makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, so you're probably not, maybe this wasn't directly like suicide, but maybe more depression issues. Yeah. Depression. Um, like when you, you know, loss of income or loss of your land, you know, 
people just struggling with that. I guess I can say um, <clears throat> those flyers had like little tabs that you can rip off. And typically they were pretty, a lot of the tabs were ripped off <laughs> where you can grab the number. So I think people were using it or at least interested in calling um, and using those resources, mm. which is kind of, um, I guess, historically, we don't often think about rural people accessing or mental health care, um, you know, trying to be a tough, tough person. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it affects all of us. And so it's important to to be open to those. And we, we saw that folks, no matter where they were from, were utilizing those that care. No, that's good. I mean, I think that's very important. Just as a, I don't personally have dealt with that, but uh, you know, I have the unfortunate experience of dealing with family stuff with people who have. And um, you know, I, I think there is sort of um, this notion that you know, it's mental health issues don't exist in rural areas, or they won't mm-hmm. uh, admit that they have an issue. And I, I do think there may be more less, maybe less willingness in especially older people in rural areas to. Be more open about it, but I, I do think they are willing to seek help as long as it's maybe somewhat confidential, very private. Um, and I'm hoping that maybe as our society is starting to open our minds to mental health issues, that maybe that conversation starts changing. I, I think so. And and the big part of also is rural areas have a real lack of access to care. Yeah, probably just care in general, right? Yeah, just in general. And then when you talk about mental health and behavioral health, it, it it's it's definitely um, much worse in that uh, in those areas. And so that's why we're a lot of these resources, online resources, now with telehealth, a lot more, uh, there's a lot more availability. And so, yeah, just to kind of echo that, there are resources available. So if anybody is potentially um, uh, dealing with any issues or if, if they know somebody that might be dealing with issues, there are multiple different opportunities for, for access to resources. That is a, an incredibly important thing uh, to pay attention to and, and to provide. And, and I think we could probably even provide some uh, things in the, if there's like show notes or anything with this, that, that shows yes, absolutely. potentially get access to some of those things. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Also, I think Jesse, aren't folks at the water climate health program interested in some of the research around that? So like how stress impacts farmers from like stress from drought and things like that. Some folks are doing some research. But... Yeah. Yeah. We've done some research. Um, there was, uh, let's see, it was a couple of years ago, we published a study where it was an occupational, uh, it was going out to, to farmers across this part of the country. And it was an occupational survey. And it was mostly to try to address, you know, what kind of, um, you know, exposed, like, like what kind of occupational injuries were they getting from farming? But within that survey, it also said, you know, are you feeling stressed? And we looked at that and during the time period when that survey was going out was around 2012 and a drop year. Yep. Major drought year for this part of the United States. And so when we looked at it for the, especially during the growing season, you saw um, a lot of farmers were reporting that they were feeling stressed during that period. And so I think that just kind of shows that there is that relationship and as none of us would be surprised with being from rural areas or engaging with farming communities, that relationship with the environment, the relationship with your land and how potential impacts on you know, the environment and your land might actually have impacts on you. I did another podcast uh, in Southwest, uh, in the Southwest, it was an ag podcast down there. And this, um, 
and the and they reached out to me because they were interested in talking about drought and stress and and potential mental behavioral health impacts on on farmers and ranchers. And the reason they did that was the podcast before they were talking about a major drought that was taking place in that area, and they were talking to a rancher, and they were asking about you know the impacts it was having on his cattle. And at some point, that rancher said, you know, th- this is impacting my cattle for sure, but it's also impacting me. He's like, this is stressful. This is causing me a lot of, 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 of uh, grief. This is causing me a lot of issues and trying to just deal with this situation. And so this is a... a beyond just the fi- potential financial loss. Right. Beyond just the fi- potential financial loss. And so, yeah, I think that's... You know, that's one of the areas that we're trying to to work around as well is, you know, when we're seeing these types of of issues, droughts, floods, whatever, and the impacts that they can have on rural areas, making sure that there's resources available and maybe more resources available, like what Laura was talking about during those time periods, just so that the, they know that there's more there's opportunities for for individuals to reach out sure. and get information. Yeah, I think the resources are important, but I, I think it's almost just as important or maybe even potentially in some cases more important that they just have people they can talk to. Exactly. And I think that's what's so important about having people like Laura on the ground interacting with people. So it's, I think that's why extension is so valuable. It's not just that we're doing things to help give them better information. I think in some cases it's just we're, we're there to talk with them or there yeah. to listen. Yeah, exactly. Like there's a lot of technical expertise, but um, with an extension, but also it's human to human conversation and contact, which is really important. So just going to finish up today. What gives uh, what gives you guys hope? I think with me, how many people I interact with, they all seem to care. Um, No one really is just brushes it off and doesn't really care. I think bottom line is. People people want to protect themselves and their families and others. And I think that's inspirational. Um, Sometimes it can get a little, you know, stressful and you're just feeling like an uphill battle. But um, when you talk one-on-one, you know, like we're just saying, like human connection is important and to listen to people and know that they care about each other and protecting the health of themselves and the environment is really um, inspiring. And I think what kind of keeps me going in this work. Yeah. I would I would echo that. I, I mean, from every level, whether it's elected officials um, on either party or either line or whatever, however you want to phrase that, um, to uh, state government employees, to individuals working um, within communities, to uh, community members themselves and people living across Nebraska, I've had excellent conversations. I've met a lot of people that are really interested in a lot of these issues and wanting to make Nebraska a safer, healthier place to live. And so that gives me a lot of hope. And then also uh, individuals that are newer, that coming into the career like Laura, that are interested in engaging in this. We have a lot of students that are very interested and passionate about doing good things in the world and trying to be a positive force within the world. And I think that for me is is something that gives me a lot of hope because I know when I'm retired and dead and everything else, there's still going to be other people out there that are still trying to make this continue to move forward and, and make us uh, have a safer, a safer and healthier place to live. Thank you both for coming on. And I think both of you have done Bloomfield proud. 
Thanks. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks. You too.